Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Willie, Willie, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three. So begins the rhyme I learnt at school in the 1960s, which is a way of remembering the British monarchs in order from King William the Conqueror to the present day. And in this series, I'm going to be going through those monarchs in order, looking at each of their lives, seeing who came before them, who came after, who they married, what they did, what they did right, what they did wrong, and how they ended up. And one of the themes of the series is why were people so desperate to become king or queen? When you look at the lives these, these monarchs led, which were mostly pretty miserable, and many of them ended horribly, went horribly wrong. Many of them died from awful diseases. Some died as a result of warfare. Some were murdered. Some were starved to death. And you think, what was it all for? Why did they all fight so hard? Because often someone would come in who wasn't the rightful king, whatever that means, and they would depose the king. They would get rid of them because they wanted to be king. They wanted to put their family first. But, but what was that great drive to do that? It's interesting. I, th I think we've seen it recently on a, on a parallel level in 2022 with the prime ministers of the UK, the desperate infighting and squabbling and battling to be, I want to be the prime minister. And every prime minister's rule ends in defeat. It has to. You can't stay there forever. One way or another, you're going to be booted out or voted out or retire or die. You know, Boris Johnson was, was booted out by his own party. Liz Truss came in. She was booted out after an extremely short reign. Rishi Sunak came in. Again, why Why do you want to be? Is it so, you know, because your name goes down in history, so your family becomes exalted. What is it? Because it can't actually be a huge amount of fun. And you look at our monarchs. Look at Queen Elizabeth. When you look at her life, what she did, it just seems so incredibly dull. What an awful job to spend your life opening nylon factories and having state dinners with, with boring foreign dignitaries. And you could see all that, all that Elizabeth really wanted to do was spend time with her horses and go to the horse racing. But she had to do all this terrible, tedious stuff and make these tedious speeches that were written for her. And yet King Charles, you see, has always been desperate to take the throne and has been diminished by the fact that he's had to wait so long and it must have eaten away at him. And look at the, the, the squabbling and the infighting between William and Harry. It's medieval history all over again. 
And as I say, one thing I will look at through this series is the quite miserable lives that most of these monarchs had. And today's episode is another introductory episode. We'll be looking at Anglo-Saxon Britain and the various Anglo-Saxon kings leading up to King William. After that, we will go through the monarchy from King William. And the episodes will vary in length because some monarchs weren't on the throne for very long. And some of them were extremely dull and did very little and nothing much happened during their reign. So I'm hoping in those episodes we, we can spend a bit of time looking at the wider historical issues of the time. But this episode, as I say, is looking at Anglo-Saxon Britain. And we saw in episode one how the, the Romans changed Britain and then left uh, around about 400, uh, leaving Britain kind of rudderless and and being to some level the soft underbelly of Europe. The, we'd had this sort of pampered southern England that had grown rich and fat and under Roman patronage, and now there was no one to protect them. The rich agricultural land and the mineral wealth of, of Britain was, was up for grabs. There was turmoil in Europe as all these various Germanic tribes were milling about and displacing each other and moving and looking for more land. There was a big expansion out of Scandinavia. The British called them all Danes, and we tend to call them all Vikings. Um, I'll call them Vikings in this series. It's it's easier to remember who they are then. But they they had limited land and resources. They were a great seafaring people. Obviously, a lot of their food and wealth will have come from the sea, and they started more and more expanding, looking for new territory to take over and looking for new places that they could they could rob to take not only wealth, but also people. What we have to remember is that a system of slavery was rife in the world. The Greeks had had slaves. We talk about them as the first democracy, but there was a small democratic elite at the top of society supported by a vast network of slaves. The Romans were exactly the same, as were the French, the Spanish, the Germans, the British. Slavery was an accepted thing, and you would, if you needed more women, you'd go and steal them from someone else and enslave them. If you needed more workers, you'd go and enslave some people and bring them over, and you would own them and get them to do whatever you wanted. And we will see, actually, later on, in, when we look at William I in the next episode, that the Normans considered themselves fairly pious, and their form of Christianity that they followed was very anti-slavery, and it was under the Normans that, that Britain finally closed down its original slave trade. So all of this was going on, and the British felt themselves a little bit exposed, as indeed they were. These Germanic tribes, primarily the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, started crossing the Channel. First of all, they would have raided, and then they would have started to settle. And what's interesting is it's quite hard to work out from the evidence how much this was a violent invasion and how much it was just people were coming over and settling and intermingling with the locals. It's quite hard to tell from, from, from the DNA and the genetic history. We can tell a certain amount from the spread of place names and the changes in language. But slowly, over the next two or three hundred years, these Germanic tribes took over more and more of Britain and, and of British culture. Again, like the Romans, they, they were largely concentrated to what is present-day England. And it's interesting that the German tribes initially referred to all the native Britons as Welsh, which comes from a Germanic word which I don't know how to pronounce. It's something like Welha or something. It meant sort of inhabitants of the Roman Empire or essentially foreigners. And as the, the Angles and the Saxons took over more and more of England, they forced the original Celtic peoples and the Romano-British people away from the centre. Obviously, Wales was where a lot of them ended up, but also Cornwall. The wall part of Cornwall comes from the same Germanic word, same as the Welsh. And you look at British names like Wallace, again, comes from the same root. The Celts themselves didn't call themselves the Welsh. The name for Wales was Cymru, and this Celtic name is preserved in areas like Cumbria. But the Welsh word we see in European places like Wallachia 
and the, the Walloons, who are now part of uh, Belgium and northern France, these vestiges of the original Celtic people who were displaced by the Germans. Uh, for instance, we, we, uh, I talked briefly in the last episode about how the Germanic tribe, the Franks, took over Gaul and changed it from being Gaul into being France. So Britain at the time was, was divided up into several different kingdoms. Uh, initially, there was no overall ruler of, of Britain. We had Mercia, which is essentially the Midlands, which was a very rich and, and powerful and dominant area. The north was known as Northumbria. The west was Wessex, which comes from the West Saxons. Uh, the east was East Anglia, obviously named after the Angles. Then we had smaller southern kingdoms. There was Kent, there was Sussex, which was the South Saxons. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Essex, the East Saxons. And those seven areas were known as the Heptarchy. There were other smaller areas, such as Strathclyde in the, in the northwest. But England has sort of solidified into these areas and each had their own king, which was a sort of Anglo-Saxon British word which initially I think just meant a tribal leader, but then they started styling themselves as these all-powerful kings. And the history of, of the sort of Anglo-Saxon period in Britain is extremely complicated, as we had all these kings would all, at various stages, decided they wanted to try and take over the whole lot, uh, particularly the kings of Mercia and Wessex. Uh, one would get very strong and would try and expand and would take over several other territories and it would look like we were becoming a single nation but then they would die or be killed and it would all fall apart and, and another powerful ruler would would grow up elsewhere and it was made more difficult by the fact that we were constantly being invaded by the vikings particularly along the east coast and up in the north so that eventually and we'll come on to this later northumbria essentially became a viking settlement with their capital at york we know a reasonable amount about this period because there were various historians. And the interesting thing about these historians and the writers in, in Britain is that unlike most of the rest of Europe, they wrote in Latin, but they also wrote in a native British language, which eventually became called English after the, the Angles. But we were one of the first nations to start writing books in our own tongue. Uh, these were all monks who were writing histories of Britain. There was famously, there was the Venerable Bede, there was a guy called Gildas, there was Geoffrey of Monmouth. But the most important of all were the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, which were started by King Alfred around about the year 800. And they gave us a history of Britain following the Roman rule. A lot of it was written after the event so it was done from memory, from folk memory, and cobbled together from myths and legends. And a lot of it was made up, but, but um, it's, it's all we have to go on, really. And it tells, as I say, this complicated tale of, of constant warfare. And it was an extremely bloody history, made more complicated by the fact that everybody seemed to have the same sort of names. If you look back at some of these rulers, there are some which are easier to follow. Um, the lights of Egbert, Edward, Edmund and Edgar. But there was a huge number who were, whose names started Athel with that weird Anglo-Saxon A-E fused together, which means sort of Lord. So if you're trying to follow Anglo-Saxon history and, and, and understand these various different rulers, even trying to follow a family tree, you're wading through the likes of Athel Wolf, Athel Stan, Athel Bert, Athel Helm, Athel Wold, Athel Fled, Athel Red, Athel Weird. And trying to make sense of all that is extremely difficult. But all you need to remember is, is they mostly killed each other or, or chopped their hands off or blinded each other. Mixed up amongst them, just to make it a little bit more diverse, you then got the E and the A reversed. So the names are starting E-A. So you've got L's with Edgifu, Edwin, Edrid, Edwig. There's a name I really can't pronounce, which is spelled E-C-G-W-Y-N. So yes, it's a, it's a complicated history. There doesn't seem to have been huge resistance to the Angles and Saxons. The only sort of battle that seems to be recorded, and, and even that no one can say if it really happened and what scale it was, was the Battle of Baden Hill, which was around about the year 500. 
and that was recorded as a defeat of the Saxon invaders. They tended to just be lumped together as being called Saxon, a defeat of the Saxons by the native British. And there is mention in some of the histories of there being an Arthur involved in this battle. And, and some people think that this is the origins of the myth of King Arthur, of being this savior, the leader of the British people. But Arthur, like so many great British heroes, was in the end a heroic failure. <laughs> his, his round table fell apart. His uh, great hero turned against him and went off with his wife. And he ended up being killed in battle. But the perfect English hero. And we're waiting for him to come back and, and, and fail all over again. Whether there ever was an Arthur, who knows? Some people say that there was a Roman who had stayed on in Britain and became a, a leader. But it's part of our shared myths and legends that come from Wales, stories written in Wales, and quite a lot from France, some stories written in France. So he's not even really an English hero. So all this was going on, and at the same time, the, the Danes were invading, the Vikings, and they would, they would come and sack areas. They attacked Lindisfarne, this holy island off the northeast coast, very rich monastery, nicked everything, burnt things killed the monks and, and, and were constantly attacking, raiding, occasionally settling, and the British would occasionally pay them to go away or try and uh, hire an army from Europe to come and get rid of them. And then the mercenary army would turn on the British and, and try and take over themselves. So it was a bit of a mess. Christianity is one of the things that was, was holding the, the nation together, but also uh, pulling it apart a bit. There were, there were huge raging arguments leading almost to wars about things like what date Easter should be celebrated. But it was famously King Alfred who eventually united the British into some kind of a nation, a process that had been started by his grandfather, Egbert, who'd been one of these lesser kings who had managed to expand his territory. His son, Athelwulf, had been reasonably successful, but it was Alfred who was the most successful, ended up being called Alfred the Great. I think our only British monarch who earned the epithet, the Great. And like so many people, he was a resistance leader. He unified the people against a common enemy. He was a Christian and Christianity was one of his weapons, if you like, trying to unite the whole of Britain into a one common belief. So most of the Anglo-Saxons had, had given up on their original uh, pagan beliefs. And so the Vikings who kept their pagan beliefs were an easy enemy. And so Alfred tried to unite Southern England against the Danes, and it came and went. Sometimes he was more successful than others. At one point, he was at a very low ebb. He was stranded with a small group of supporters in the, the Somerset levels around Glastonbury, this very low-lying, swampy marshland that was very hard to navigate if you didn't know your way around. And he hid out there in the mud and the damp and the, and the disease with a small group of men but managed to somehow on the back of that raise an army and expand, fight his way out, push the Vikings back, establish himself in Winchester, which was the old capital of, of, of England, and then London and force the Danes north until we sort of had a north-south divide where the north of England, Northumbria, was, was Viking and the south was British. Interestingly, it's a north-south divide that persists to this day, really. There is still this, this sort of antagonism and animosity which goes back over a thousand years. Um, and Alfred carried on the same tradition of paying off the Danes to leave them alone. And the Danish area, the Viking area, became known as the Dane law and the payment to keep them off our backs was called the Dane geld, the Dane gold. Alfred was pretty successful, hence got called the Great, although not in his time. His son, Edward, carried on the tradition. He did pretty well. But also, interestingly, his daughter, Ethelflad, who ended up ruling Mercia, was a very powerful female figure at the time, leading armies, ruling, and, and very well respected. And between them, they managed to hold England together for a certain amount of time. And, and it was a tradition 
that held for a good hundred years against constant incursions from the Vikings. So the Vikings were really interesting people. I mean, we, we, you know, they're a sort of, despite having a fairly bad reputation on one level, they're also the sort of glamorous and romantic part of history that uh, kids are quite interested in. The fact that they did expand, that they took over Iceland and Greenland, that they got as far as America, that they came down the west coast of, of, of Europe, uh, a group of them settled in, in northwest France and created Normandy, the land of the Normans, the Northmen, the Norsemen. And they went round through the Mediterranean and they fought through the Mediterranean and there were many Norman cities in the Mediterranean. They got as far as the, the Middle East. There was um, a, a group of them who became a mercenary army for the rulers of Byzantium. They also went into what is now Russia, and Russia was formed by the Vikings. The Rus were a Viking tribe settling first in Ukraine, uh, but then when Ukraine became quite hard to defend against incursions from the east, from the Mongols, they retreated up and formed a new city, which became Moscow. So the Russians are Vikings, the Normans are Vikings, half the British are Vikings, and they kept battering us. They settled a lot in Ireland, particularly down the east coast and, as I say, in the, in the north of England. And they were a constant threat. It unified the, the rest of England, but often then things would go wrong. The British would start infighting and the Danish, the Vikings, would make fresh incursions. And the English king who really cocked it up was, was Ethelred, who ruled from 978 to 1016 and has gone down in history as Ethelred the Unready which is a hilarious joke that schoolboys used to learn. I think probably many modern school children have never heard of Ethelred the Unready, but they should. And perhaps one day they'll listen to this podcast and find out about him. Unready wasn't that he was unprepared, but Ethelred, the Ethel part means Lord and Red means well-advised. So his name means the well-advised Lord and Unready uh, in its original meaning meant badly advised. So he, the joke was he was the well-advised lord who was badly advised. He didn't deal with the Viking threat at all well. He vacillated. He was a bit wishy-washy. He kept supporting the wrong people. And eventually he was deposed. A Viking invader called Canute um, was more organised and more successful than previous ones. His father, Swain Forkbeard of Denmark, had, had um, been having a go at the British. Um, it's great that the Viking rulers did have these fantastic names like Forkbeard and Bloodaxe and Bluetooth, like people out of a video game. But Canute comes over and manages to get rid of Ethelred and sets himself up as the ruler of Britain. One of the things that Ethelred did to try and uh, cement his authority in a, in a very uncertain time was he married Emma of Normandy. So she was a Norman woman. She was the daughter of the ruler of Normandy, Richard I of Normandy. So Ethelred was, was making ties and making connections with the Normans and hoping that they would help him against, against the Vikings. But Canute invades, deposes Ethelred and ends up marrying Emma himself and thus cementing closer ties between the Vikings and the Normans. And so we have our first Viking ruler of Britain. He uh, ruled pretty well for 20 years. He, he wasn't too controversial. He decided not to try and kill everybody and was reasonably well respected. Canute also married, and this shows I'm not a historian. I can't remember whether this was his first wife or his second, but he married a local Anglo-Saxon uh, woman called Elfgifu of Northampton and had two sons with her, including King Harold I. This is not the King Harold with the arrow in the eye. This is Harold Harefoot, who ruled from 1035 to 1040. He died, and Canute's son by Emma, Hartha Canute, became ruler. It's 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 all complicated. This and this is the easy bit of Anglo-Saxon history. It's easy to follow Canute because he's a bit different to all the Ethels. But Hartha Canute uh, died after a couple of years on the throne and there were no more children of Canute to take over. So the, the throne was up for grabs again. Ethelred, 
the unready, had had several sons. Canute had killed at least one of them. I said he didn't kill any everybody, but he did kill some. But he had spared Edward, the youngest son. Um, Edward had gone into exile with Ethelred when Canute took over, and he had gone to his uh, grandfather's country, his mother's country. He had gone to Normandy. Um, Normandy, this separate kingdom within France, constantly at odds with the French themselves and the French king, and but but holding on because they were a pretty tough nation. So Ethelred and his son Edward went to Normandy, and Edward grew up as a Norman with very close ties. And when Arthur Knut died in 1042, Edward was invited back and took over as King of England and managed to sell the idea that he was very pious, although there's not a huge amount of evidence that he was, and became known as Edward the Confessor, this very uh, Christian king who ruled pretty well and was pretty well respected and restored some sense of unity to England. But it did mean that the, the, the monarchy in Britain was, was pretty unstable. We had Vikings who could claim to have a claim on it via Swain Forkbeard Canute, Half a Canute. It's reminded me of the Monty Python song, a bee, a bee, a half a bee. Canute, Canute, half a Canute. I digress. So the Vikings have a claim on the throne. The Normans have a claim on the throne via Richard I of Normandy and Emma. And then, of course, there are the English who've just got back onto the throne. But Edward the Confessor himself is only half English. He's half English and half Norman. So it's not at all clear cut. If anything goes wrong, the throne will be up for grabs again. And Edward the Confessor makes the mistake, and it's a mistake we'll see repeated time and time again through English history. And it's one of the main causes of unrest and disruption, civil war, chaos, death and destruction. It's when a monarch dies without an heir. And Edward the Confessor does just that. Big mistake. He was married. He was married to a woman called Edith. And Edith was part of this incredibly powerful family in England, the Godwins, the most powerful group outside of Edward the Confessor, Earl Godwin, his daughter. He pretty much forced Edward to marry her, to unite their two families. And towards the end of his reign, Godwin was very much in charge in Britain. He had been exiled at one point himself, uh, as as Edward and his his cronies thought Godwin was was too powerful, but Edward realised he needed him back, so Godwin was was in, reintroduced into the fold, and so yes, Godwin's son Edith married Edward, and Edith's brother was Harold, the famous Harold, enters our story, and you know we talk about the the Norman invasion as you know King Harold, this the the, the, the rightful ruler of England being killed but he had absolutely no right to rule England at all other than the fact that his sister was married to Edward. So Harold had hung out in Normandy uh, when he was growing up. His family were trying to worm their way into a position of greater power and when Edward the Confessor dies without an heir Harold claims that he was with him on his deathbed and he said to Harold it should be you Harry you should be our king. And nobody was in a position to argue because the Godwins were so powerful. Essentially, it was it was a coup. They took over. Before this incident, Harold had been travelling to Normandy on a mission of some sort and had been shipwrecked and had ended up in the court of Duke William. They had become friends. Harold had gone campaigning with Duke William in northern France. William was constantly trying to enlarge his territory. And William claimed that Harold swore over some holy relics of a, of a dead saint that if Edward died without an heir, William should be the rightful King of England. Harold claims that the bones, if they even existed at all, were, were hidden under a, under a cloth beneath a table. So, I mean, who knows? It's his propaganda on all sides. But when it came down to it, Neither William nor Harold had an indisputable claim to the English throne. And we all know what happens next. It's the one date that every Englishman is required by law to know. 1066. 
the invasion by the Normans, the Battle of Hastings, and the year of the three kings, Edward, Harold, and William, all sitting on the English throne. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, in our next episode, we'll finally get to the start of my rhyme as we hit our first Willy, William the Conqueror. I'm very excited to have as my guest this week the proper historian, Mark Morris. I first came across him when I read his book about the Norman Conquest, and then more recently, he's written a book about the Anglo-Saxons. Um, it's great to have you on Mark, but what what led you to the Anglo-Saxons? What led you to write that book? Oh, well, you've kind of answered your own question there because I did one on the Norman Conquest and, you know, it was the obvious prequel. Um, I've always been, uh, really since I went to university, a post-conquest historian simply because the evidence is so much more voluminous once you're post-conquest, um, especially when you get to the 13th century. So it's, it's a, uh, you know, that's the way my supervisors directed me because they knew that there'd be plenty of evidence to graze on. Um, and people do sort of t end up in, you know, cultivating their little part of the garden. It's interesting. I, I, I do a couple of events every year at the Chalk Valley History Festival, which I'm sure you must have been at. And one of the things we do is a history quiz and we get historians on and they're always complaining like, I don't know about history. I only know about this tiny part of it. Exactly so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's generalists are increasingly rare, and I'm 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 not one of them. But but if you do, if you write books commercially, as I do, I don't have a university post, so I have to live by my pen. Mm. You can't write the same book again and again and again. Um, so I went pre-conquest, and I'd done a certain amount of pre-conquest stuff by dint of doing the Norman Conquest, and I'd done some stuff at university. But this took me right back to the fall of Roman Britain. It's a bit like what I've done with this series of wanting to start with William and then thinking you can't really start English history there. So, yes, I, I, having just read your book on the Anglo-Saxons, uh, you seem the ideal person to, to... I mean, it's quite hard to make sense. As you say, the history is, is, is a bit sketchy here and there, but all the names, which are all variations on Athel of some sort how did you find i mean i i cannot begin to understand how a historian can kind of try and make sense of all of that well i mean as you say if if the, the fact that they have sort of similar sounding names is the, probably the, the least problematic thing about the book <laughs> i mean from the point of view of the reader it may seem so but the essential problem is the subtitle of the book is a history of the beginnings of england and the beginnings are totally obscure because you're going from a period of prehistory into history. You're going from a period where you have no written records whatsoever. So doing what popular historians normally do, i.e. crafting a strong narrative, is damn near impossible. I mean, I started the book with a, with a sort of a, a mise-en-scene about someone digging up the big, incidentally digging up the biggest Roman coin hoard ever found because he was looking for his hammer, which is just a nice <laughs> soft intro to a book which which ordinarily you begin a book like that with a chronicle anecdote or the death of a king or some mm. in, amusing instance from the time itself rather than 1992. But it was so starved of those kind of um, hooks mm. that it became difficult to do. So it, it's it's it really hard to to tease out a story, and that means you have to kind of make sure the argument is very logical. But you 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 sort of focused on a series of characters, didn't you? Once I had characters, yeah, characters through through the through the history, which which was a really certainly helpful as a reader to have that. 
backbone to it. Well, I think, again, it's because what you're dealing with, I mean, the reason you, I think you're, you, you probably your own thought process in saying you have to go pre-William the Conqueror if you're doing a history of the monarchy is that the monarchy is a pre-existing institution, doesn't come into being in 1066. Um, but a lot of the things that we find familiar when you're dealing with the Anglo-Saxons, they they themselves come into being in those centuries. So whereas if you were doing a book set in the 11th, 12th century, you'd talk about shires and towns and parliament or, you know, your pre-parliament <laughs> at that stage, but the monarchy, and people would know what you meant. Whereas if you're talking about what is yet to become England in, say, the 7th century, you haven't yet got shires in the Midlands or you haven't got, you know, um, bishoprics everywhere. So the, the, the fact that the, the landscape is so unfamiliar and you have to keep reminding people, well, this is Mercia or this is Northumbria or this mm -hmm. is East Anglia. Having one character to focus on was a way of kind of having them hold your hand through this alien landscape. So, so, I mean, who was the first Anglo-Saxon to officially call themselves king? The, the fallacy is, the popular myth, is that as soon as they got off the boat in whenever it was, you know, the, the official date originally was like, you know, 450 or 451, they were kings from the very outset. I mean, when I was primary school, I grew up in Kent, which is... Uh, in legend, the places where, where Hengist and Horsa, the first arrivals, landed, and they are instantly kings of Kent. And that's what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says. Problem is, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is written four and a half centuries after the event. So it's, 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 these, are, these are myths that have been kind of mm. handed down. So uh, when you look at the archaeology of early um, Anglo-Saxon England, or if you like, sub-Roman Britain, there's very little evidence archaeologically of social differentiation at all. So you can't really see anyone who looks like a king until you get to the period of, say, Sutton Hoo, which is about 150 years after the, the immigration starts. Then you start seeing people living at large on a scale that is kind of commensurate with them being kings. So, you know, it's hard to say precisely when they started styling themselves that way, but, but kingdoms seem to kind of start to coalesce towards the end of the 6th century. Mm. Now, you, you talk about immigration there, and mm. of course, and immigration to Kent, which today is a very contentious issue. And a lot of this sort of argument about England and what it means to be English, you, you, do, ha you do end up going back to Anglo-Saxon times. And what is the current thinking? Was it immigration? Was it an, inv an invasion? Was it assimilation? How, how did it work, this, this massive incursion of these Germanic tribes? Well, the answer is kind of, the, the honest answer is, if only we knew, you know, because as I say, it's a prehistoric time. Um, and when you say it's a current argument, I mean, it's, this is an argument that's been going on in historical circles for well over a century. You know, you look at the earliest um, bona fide academic books on this topic and there's people sort of saying well some people saying it was a, a, a tsunami a tidal wave which is i think the kind of like the the the, the old-fashioned traditional explanation mm. because that's what that's after all what's said by the closest thing we've got to a contemporary source is a british writer called gildas writing in the early sixth century and he describes it in those um, apocalyptic terms um and then you you may have people you know even a century ago saying nonsense it was just you know it was a it can't have been more than a trickle of migrants and and but they have um, a disproportionate impact on account of their status so and it's really there's any number of positions you can take between those two extremes as i say in the book it seems to me after a lot of back and forth that the current position of most historians and you know that's a even that's a, a, a broad generalization but the closest thing to um consensus would be that the immigration is sizable, say hundreds of thousands of people, mm. but not nearly as large as the population that's already in situ, i.e. whatever you call the people who are left after the Romans, the Romano-British or mm. whatever. You know. So, uh, you know, who must have numbered, you know, into seven figures. So you've got potentially six-figure number and uh, as opposed to a, a seven-finger seven finger number of people who are in situ. Is the genetic evidence any use in terms of how much there was sort of intermarrying and intermingling rather than forcing the Celts to the to the fringes? I, I think only up to a very limited point because 
with the genetic evidence, you can only you can you can two ways you can approach it. I can, you know, take a sample of your DNA by, you know, getting a scraping some saliva off the side of your mouth and then saying, where were your great grandparents from? Which I think is kind of fraught with interpretive difficulties because or methodological flaws, because it's, you know, you can only take it back so far. And that assumes that the population has been static since the early mm. 20th century. The other way you can do it, which is much more reliable, of course, is to actually dig up bones or even better teeth and analyze the isotopes or, you know, analyze the bones and say, well, this person may have been born in Germany and this person seems to have been born locally and yet they're buried in the same graveyard. Mm. Um, the problem with that is that it's, it's, it's kind of anecdote, isn't it? It doesn't, you can't generalize from it. So you can see in this graveyard, we dug up 40 skeletons and it seems probably because the science is imperfect, probably that a third of them came from, you know, Northern Germany and two thirds of them were locals, but you can't extrapolate from that until you've dug up every single cemetery. Now that, you know, in recent <laughs> studies doing, trying to do just that, trying to correlate all the evidence we have, but it's, you know, I think it's ultimately one of those questions where science is only of limited use in giving you the general picture. It can give you a lot of, of course, valuable information about specifics, but I, I personally don't think you can extrapolate from that. Mm. And then we have the sort of the cataclysm of the Norman invasion mm. and William seemed determined to sort of wipe out Anglo-Saxon culture and influence. I mean, what, what sort of remained of that? Well, you see, I, I fundamentally disagree with you. I don't think oh, excellent. I don't think he was <laughs> determined to wipe out Anglo-Saxon culture at all. Um, I mean, remember, his claim to the throne is that he is the legitimate heir of Edward the Confessor. And right. he was the person nominated. And he's very fond of Edward the Confessor. I mean, he knew him growing up. Edward the Confessor had been in exile at the Norman court for 25 years. He must have known Edward very well up to the point that Edward left when William was a teenager. And... Um, his whole shtick, you know, going forward was like, you know, this is this has been given to me by the blessed, you know, um, he's not a saint at that stage, but by mm. the blessed Edward of, of, you know, Edward of blessed memory. Um, and I, he starts off trying to be a, a very model English king. He, according to Roderick Vitalis, writing a generation later, he tries to learn English. Sorry, Mark, I, 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 I've drawn you into the post-conquest yeah but you know no harm done <laughs> but um but i mean you know i i was talking about the names earlier and i do find it fascinating that there were all these very strong and distinctive anglo-saxon names most of the women's names i can't actually pronounce and have no idea how to pronounce but they've all pretty much disappeared i mean some of them have stayed alfred We've got some Edwards, Edgar. I mean, did was there a sort of renaissance of Anglo-Saxon names in the Victorian era? Sort of certainly in the Victorian period. Yeah, because they were they were mad on on you know old English and the Anglo-Saxons. Um, mm. um, so that's where you get Harolds and Alfreds and and the the lesser known ones. I mean, the sort of the the Edwins and the Ed uh, Edwigs kind of coming back. Yeah, the the only one really, um, well, the only the only royal name that's carried forward is Edward, yeah. and that's because of Henry III's pe peculiar uh, devotion to the cult of Edward the Confessor. Right. So the fact that he names his son Edward, which would be really outlandish now, it would be like, you know, um, say, William going forwards, choosing to call his son, I don't know, Alfonso or something, you know, something that was kind of Augustus. like... Augustus. Yeah, <laughs> just something that, you know, or, or giving him a, a sort of a, a Hindi name or something, you mm. know, giving him something that was, you know, sounded sounded um foreign to english ears but 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 these names that they, they don't seem to have survived amongst you know like the ordinary english people i mean for me that looks like a sort of removal of of the anglo-saxon past and culture well i think it's but that it's kind of it's it's something that happens by those people themselves you know winning the conqueror mm. on, and his acolytes and, and his, you know, his his successors don't go around saying you can't call your children english names anymore what it means is if you were if you had children in the early 12th century and you were a a, a well-to-do free man um are you or free woman for that matter are you going to call your sons and daughters the names of the sort of victor the, the the losers in this you know this culture mm. war in a genuine sense um or are you going to say, well, we should call them William and Harry and, um, you know, um, Matilda, because then they will get on better in life. I mean, it's one of the things that bedevils 
even early um, uh, attempts to work out um, ethnicity in early 12th century England, you know, who is still Norman, who is still identified as English, even a generation or so after the conquest, because you can't look at, um, I think the earliest evidence is kind of Winchester rent rolls or something from the early 12th century. <laughs> you can't look at those and say, oh, well, all these people have Norman names, therefore they are Norman. Right, they must have come right. over in 1066, because people are already automatically giving their children French names. There's a good story in, um, I forget exactly where it is, it's a Saint, a Northern, a Northumbrian saint's life. And it talks about, it's a story about um, a boy who was called something like Tostig, you know, or he mm. had an, a, a Norse or Anglo-Norse name. And he was teased, you know, by the other boys in the playground, <laughs> essentially, who were all called things like Willie, Harry, Stee, you know. <laughs> um, so they, they just fall out of fashion because you've now got this Anglo-French culture. And if you want to get on, call your children Norman French names. Uh, and what happened to the sort of the, the compacted a e what is that called that letter where oh the yeah, e, I, e it's, is... it's, it's um ash isn't it it's, it's the ash. aE digraph um but i mean i'm 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 as bad as you when it comes to pronouncing these names because although <laughs> i studied anglo-saxon history i never was never learned old english mm. um so i we had to, the the audio book for this was mad you know i mean people were saying to me how do i say this and i said <laughs> I just i'll get back to you on that you know uh, my partner is um is the head of pronunciation for oxford english dictionaries and oh, we had to sort of have her sitting in and then an anglo-saxon expert <laughs> and the audio book guy there was a lot of hard graph getting that audio book to work well i'd better i'd better listen to the audio book to get yeah my the audio book absolutely right. on the money it's very well done <laughs> now you you've you've talked about historians here and the anglo-saxon chronicles because i was going to say you know and you and you said earlier we we know very little about it but it is through these historians that people will be vaguely aware usually of oh yes i've heard of the anglo-saxon chronicles i've heard of the venerable bead um can you just tell us a little bit more about that the the story of the anglo-saxon chronicle well i mean Let's just can we just do bead as well? I mean, the, yeah, the yeah. I mean, is, do all of them. <laughs> the point is, you know, I think chronicles are, are, are essential for this period. I mean, chronicles are essential for every period because they tell you what people are thinking, or at least what the author was thinking when they put pen to parchment. And you know, it's for there was a fashion, um, still is in some circles, you know, saying, well, you know, the chronicles can't be trusted and the, the true history lies in the administrative documents, the charters, um, the financial accounts, etc., which is true up to a point. But those things can't tell you what people were thinking. They can't mm. tell you what a public opinion was, right or wrong. You know, it, it, the, the chronicles give you uh, uh, an insight into what into people's thoughts. And so, I mean, with the with the, the entirety of the Anglo-Saxon period, say from the the early 7th century when we first have any written evidence through to 1066 itself um, we've got various written sources Bede is by far the most valuable i think because Bede's work is voluminous i mean he's just you know he writes this this book the ecclesiastical history which is his he writes other things as well but that's mm -hmm. his history book and even in modern print it's about 500 pages of text and was and, he a, a monk or a bishop? Yes, he was a, a monk uh, at Wearmouth or Wearmouth Jarrow in um, in Northumbria, which is at the time one of the most successful English kingdoms, uh, hugely prosperous um, and, and and very religious. You know, the monasticism, Christianity itself is a novelty. Christianity has only been around in Northumbria for about 50 years. And and it's it's um what's the word I want? It's a kind of almost a craze, you know, like a new religion when it when it suddenly takes root and people have got religion. Bede is part of that um that 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 renaissance of 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 learning and literature in north in seventh century Northumbria, and he lives into the eighth century. Um, he writes in the eighth century, so he gives us this this wonderfully um detailed picture portrait of 7th century England with all those kingdoms that are familiar like Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia, Kent. Um, he's he's conscientious. He kind of tries his best to kind of like, you know, do his homework, check his source material. So the reason we have, we can give you little pen portraits of people like Athelbert of Kent, who's the first king to convert, or Radwald, who is very probably the guy buried in the, the ship at Sutton Hoo, mm. or the, the you know the famous um, 
uh, abbesses of 7th century England, like, you know, Hild of, of Whitby. The reason we can describe those characters is because Bede did it all for us. Going forward from Bede into the 8th century and into the 9th century, we've got, once he's dead, we've got nothing to replace him. So the 8th century is kind of, you know, <laughs> we have a king like King Offa who reigns for nearly 40 years and is the most powerful king in southern Britain up to that point. We don't know a thing about him. I mean, in terms of his personality, mm. we've got administrative documents, we've got coins. Um, and the Anglo-Saxon, to finally get to your, your question about the Anglo-Saxon <laughs> Chronicle, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is commissioned in the, at the court of um, King Alfred the Great, who is responsible for sponsoring uh, a literary renaissance. He's struggling to counteract the destruction that's been wrought by the Vikings. So he has this sense, rightly, I think, that books have, have been lost, learning has been lost. So he commissions translations of, of great works of literature from Latin into English, and he also commissions the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Which, which are also yep. written in English. Written in, yes. So um, he's commissioning translations into English and the Chronicle itself is written in English. Um, the language that we can all understand, as Alfred describes it in a letter to his bishops. Mm. So it's a very valuable record and it's, analytic in other words it kind of it's a range in you know in this year you know 567 this happened and for the most part it's disappointingly telegraphic because i think alfred's scholars at his court when they went back to sort of say well what have we got you know what can we what can we take i mean it it, it um it summarizes bits of bead you know it takes information mm. from bead and puts them into annual, annual form but it's not it, it it's the 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 thinness or thickness of the record in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle depends upon how bothered the individual compiler can be. So and, did, and, did they ever get up to date or were they always talking about ancient history? Oh, no, they got they, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in Alfred's reign uh, was taken up to the present right. um, and continued down to Alfred's death. And then it's continued um, right down until it, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle finally ceases um, at the start of the reign of Henry the Second, or the end of the reign of King Stephen, so it goes across the the divide of the conquest, mm. and the the way it's compiled is incredibly complicated. I mean, it's you know you, scholars spend a lifetime studying the the transmission of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and where it's compiled in various monasteries, but the point is, you will find in some years and in, for some um, in some uh, locales, it's incredibly oh well, not incredibly, but it is pretty full. So you will get a nice clear account of what happened mm. and in other years i mean taking the reign of william the conqueror for example um there's instance where you know the, the chronicler says this year a fleet came from norway it is tedious to relate how it all happened and that's <laughs> it or you know 1084 something like this year abbot wolfweird died and that's it so you are you are sort of left howling at these things saying is that the best you can is that all that happened you, you know it, it sounds um, like you're not a huge fan of the anglo-saxon chronicles no i mean I th it's 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 way better than nothing at all which is what yeah. we've got for the first couple of centuries but it when it's not only when you get a, a a gap in the record that's lamentable and you kind of go oh you know what a shame but when you have a sense of there's a bloke sat there a thousand years ago editing it down to kind of this year abbot wolfkid died and you, that's when you think you bastard you know you you could have told us everything if you could if you hadn't just you know bunked off early because the pubs were open and you know i mean there are there are also a few poems that 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 leave us a bit of evidence aren't there yes i mean and the poems are coming I mean, famously you've got beowulf beowulf is beowulf is the 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 the, the absolute kind of antidote to bead because if you only had bead you would get the impression that these kings were ever so nice and <laughs> they just loved a good old prey and maybe watering some potted plants. And, you know, Bede says <laughs> this guy, I mean, Bede's message is this person converted to Christianity and therefore he was great and good things happened to him. And these people resisted Christianity and look, look what a terrible cropper they, they, mm. they became. And so he kind of leaves out all the bad stuff. If you look at, Beowulf, which is again the the, the dates are, are pretty uh, debatable for Beowulf, but I'd say that again the preponderance of scholars still go with the eighth century, so it's pretty much contemporary with Bede. That's all about, you know, just how how dismal and dark and short and nasty and brutish life and existence is, 
and how wonderful it is to be sort of like in the king's hall. But it's everything is fleeting. You know that one day your enemies are going to triumph and your hall will burn and they want glory and gold and violence. And it's kind of steeped in blood and gore and gold. And that reveals the thought world going back to the pagan past of these kings, although Beowulf is a kind of lightly Christianized poem. Mm. So those two things um, coexisting, you know, Bede on the one hand, Beowulf on the other, that they, they kind of give you a much fuller, rounded picture of what life was like. Mm. And I think that's, you know, the, the, the poetry we've got is all of it Christian. Um, yeah, but it does give you kind of glimpses of 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 again the way people thought and felt, which is why it's so valuable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what it, it comes across very clearly in your book is that at this period it was incredibly violent and and brutal. That everybody just seemed to spend their time killing everybody else. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think to be fair, it it it's stable. I mean, it's the one thing I was very keen to get across in the period, and the one the reason I arranged it chronologically because it's covering six hundred years, and you know, to make for us to make sweeping statements about oh, wasn't it wasn't it terribly violent in the second half of the of the of the the second millennium? You know, look at look at nineteen thirty nine to forty five for example. It must have been dreadful yeah. to live in the seventeenth century. You know. Um, so there are periods where it, it is more stable. I mean, the eighth century, when you've got those fairly big kingdoms um, that are not no longer bashing seven bells out of each other once a week. Like, so you've got Mercia and Northumbria and Wessex. Mm. Um, and yet, and, you, and the Vikings aren't even on the horizon yet. You know, there's, there's a fair amount of prosperity there. There's towns being, or not towns as such, but big markets like London is, is doing very well. Mm and and lots of monastic foundation and you get the impression that this is that 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 it's not kind of like you know armies appearing over the horizon every two weeks um but the only there are there are periods where yes particularly in the seventh century when these kingdoms are emerging and it's a it's a it's a complete bun fight for kind of supremacy and power and who can get the most resources and seize the most slaves and it's um it's it's red in tooth and claw isn't it well, I mean, it, it seemed to be that the Normans were were slightly appalled by the English propensity towards violence, and, the, and, and ah. particularly amongst the aristocracy, sort of what, chopping yeah, each other's hands on, off and putting their eyes out. And... Exactly. I think what you're getting to there is that there's this paradox that Anglo-Saxon, late Anglo-Saxon England is is pretty stable. I mean, Edward the Confessor reigns for, what, 24 years, and as a polity, its institutions are very robust. So you have, you know, a, 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 a document driven government, as we've said, and we've got a, a king who's whose writ runs hundreds of miles, you know, all the way from the Channel Coast up to the Scottish border. And it's it's a well-governed, um, sort of precociously well-developed state, if you like. Uh, in contrast to Normandy, which is, is kind of very Johnny-come-lately and not nearly as institutionally developed. And yet what you're talking about is the Normans and not just them, but sort of Frankish culture in the generation or so before the conquest has stopped doing political violence, i.e. not killing your opponents once they've surrendered or, or <laughs> putting their eyes out. Whereas in England, that's still OK. Um, it's still you can still behave in a very Game of Thrones way. <laughs> and you can think of lots of you lots of examples right up to 1066. I mean, um, Harold's brother, Harold Godwinson, who's king in 1066, briefly, his brother Tostig is made Earl of Northumbria in the 1050s. And at some point in the early 1060s, he has his political rivals round to dinner in a very kind of, you know, oh, let's let's, you know, you know break bread and make up. Um, people sort of emerge from behind the curtains and slit their throats. It's a completely Game of Thrones. Mm. And yet that's that's politically acceptable that's a politically acceptable way to carry on in um pre-conquest england so you know i think uh, yeah anglo-saxon england was was um throughout you know it was it was it was sort of mm. more like you would imagine the, the middle ages to be i think if you were coming at it only from a fantasy background <laughs> where, where anything went in terms of violence so finally mark if we could just talk a little bit about alfred the great uh, and I guess my question is, was he really that great? OK, well, the problem with Alfred being great is no one calls him great at the time, so far as we can see. The first time he's called great is the 13th century. And then really, no one bothers to call him that again 
down to about the 18th century. And then someone publishes a book called Alfred the Great, which becomes a big hit. And everyone goes mad for Alfred, literally Alfred mania in the 18th century of people putting up monuments to Alfred. I start the Alfred chapter with the, the fact that the oldest monument to Alfred is a pub, which is still in the town of Wantage today. Um, <laughs> And it's, 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 you know, the Alfred's head, and it goes back to the late 18th century when this Alfred mania was everywhere. When I was at school, back in the glory days of Ladybird history books uh, and a time when we had this sort of shared idea of what history was, we were all taught the story of Alfred, um, you know, burning the cakes, hiding from the Vikings, creating England, whatever. That narrative of uh, England and Alfred creating England, you know, although that's a that's an exaggeration. Al Alfred is the founding father of England. That fell out of school curriculums, you know, by the 1960s, 1970s. Mm. And, and you're just not taught it today. I think the way you're taught the Anglo-Saxons today at school is kind of in a more broad social history sense. So they had huts like this. They had trousers like that. They yeah. had combs like this. They, they worshipped this. They had letters like this. And then your narrative only begins in 1066. Mm. Whereas in terms of the creation of the state of England, it more, would make more sense to begin it in the ninth century, uh, perhaps with Alfred. So he's no longer a great, you know, that would be insane if you went back to someone in, in, in you know, 1901 or, you know, the, the 1890s mm. in the Victorian or Edwardian periods when Alfred was the, 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 the English superhero and said, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've come from 100 years in the future and we don't, we don't mention Alfred anymore, don't teach Alfred. They would, they would be flabbergasted. And I gather in historical circles, historian circles, shall we say, history circles, that even the term Anglo-Saxon is now considered a bit suspect and we shouldn't be calling them the Anglo-Saxons. Well, in certain circles. I mean, it's it's it initially in, in US circles, yes. um, where, of course, Anglo-Saxon has a totally different meaning. I mean, Anglo-Saxon in America is used to mean white. By, and, by and, yeah, and white supremacy sort of thing. Yeah, so you can well understand um, their hesitancy in using it. Um, but you, you were never tempted to call your book the early English. No, because I, <laughs> because I think, um, you know, it, 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 for, for English um, readers and English audiences who are taught it at school, it, 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 its primary meaning is as relates to this historical period relates to the you know the the yes. uh, the, the, the pre-conquest peoples of southern britain which is too long a title for a book <laughs> um it depends entirely on context you know mm. if i say to you know someone says to me you know i love a full english breakfast then i don't kind of no no, no alarm bells go off whereas if someone says to me i think england should be for the english then <laughs> huge alarm bells go off and similarly with Anglo-Saxon, you know, if someone starts talking, says, you know, Alfred styled himself king of the Anglo-Saxons, I don't go, oh, oh, and start backing away. But, you know, in, in other in other contexts, you can you can see it used in just that way that that, that, that yes. triggers people. So I see the force of the arguments, but I think it's it, it remains an indispensable term. And of course, it's one that has contemporary warrant. I mean, Alfred, you've said Alfred, Alfred the Great himself, he, he is the one who's who, who coins it. He starts off as a Rex Saxonum. And once he's um, taken over the western half of Mercia in order to appeal to his Anglian subjects, he starts styling himself a Rex Anglo-Saxonum, mm. um, and that's of course what Asser calls him. And you know, Alfred is Alfred is not a trivial king. Alfred is the most important uh, of all these kings. So, unsurprisingly, when people started to study this period in the 16th, 17th centuries, that was the term they employed. Well, I, I think that's the perfect place to wrap up this episode. Uh, and my chat. Thank you so much, Mark, for, for coming on. And I can't recommend enough your book, The Anglo-Saxons, A History of the Beginnings of England, if you really want to properly find out about what went on over those 600 years and, and then carry on into the Norman conquest and beyond. Why stop there? Yes. King John yes. Edward I, <laughs> buy all my books. <laughs> And so after two podcasts and about four and a half thousand years of history, we're about to get to the start of the rhyme and our first modern king. King William I, William the Conqueror, Willie. 
You can find out about him in the next episode of Willy Willy Harry Stee. And the best way to do that is to follow and subscribe to this podcast, which will ensure you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2023. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.